Welcome to Chiropractic Science, where you get to hear interviews with leading chiropractic researchers from around the world. Hear about chiropractic research from the authors in plain English, not through the media, nor a middleman. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I am the host of Chiropractic Science. I am an associate clinical professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Ian Coulter. But before we get to the interview, I wanted to thank all of you who have subscribed to Chiropractic Science, and I am especially appreciative to all of you who have contributed five-star reviews on iTunes. iTunes reviews really help others find out about chiropractic science. So if you like the show, please take a second and write a review. It will support chiropractors everywhere. I'd like to share a review on iTunes from Dr. Mariam Ashraf, who says, My new favorite. I'm always looking for informative podcasts that can teach me while holding my interests. This one fits the bill. Engaging guests with a relaxed and fun interview style. I'm always learning quality information, but it is never dry. Thank you for this. Well, thank you, Dr. Ashraf, for your review. I look forward to sharing your flattering iTunes review in a future podcast. Listeners of this podcast can help to sponsor future episodes. Thank you for your support. You can contribute by either making a small donation on our website or by purchasing the evidence-based patient education slides presentation. We are also on social media, including Facebook and Instagram, so please connect with us there. All right, on to the podcast. Well, let me introduce my guest today, Dr. Ian Coulter. Ian Coulter, PhD, is a senior health policy analyst at the RAND Corporation, where he holds the Samueli Institute Chair in Policy for Integrative Medicine. He is a full professor in the School of Dentistry at UCLA in the Division of Public Health and Community Dentistry, a professor at the Pardee RAND Graduate School and a research professor at the Southern California University of Health Sciences. Dr. Coulter has published over 200 articles, chapters, and books. He is the past, president, past vice president for integrative medicine at the Samueli Institute. He has had numerous grants from NIH and the DOD. For the past 20 years, he has taught ethics and research ethics at UCLA and to various professional bodies throughout the United States. He currently teaches professional ethics and research ethics in the Pediatric Dentistry uh, Residency Program at UCLA School of Dentistry. Dr. Coulter was born in New Zealand and holds degrees in sociology from the University of Canterbury and the London School of Economics and Political Sciences, which is where he got his PhD, and an honorary doctorate from, in humanities from Southern California University of Health Sciences. He is a Pew Fellow at the Rand University at Rand and the University of California, Los Angeles Center for Health Policy Study, from which he received a certificate in health policy analysis. Additional qualifications include a diploma in educational management from the Institute of Educational Management at Harvard University. He is also a past president of the Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College. And more specifically regarding his research that relates to this interview, Dr. Coulter was an author of the recent JAMA article on adding chiropractic care to usual medical care and lead author on the recent Spine Journal Systematic Review of Spinal Manipulation and Chronic Low Back Pain. 
In addition, he is currently lead investigator of the CERC project, which is funded at over $8 million to investigate chiropractors and their patients for clinician-based appropriateness, outcomes-based appropriateness, patient preferences, appropriateness, and resource utilization-based appropriateness. Dr. Coulter, it's a privilege to have you on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Thank you. Yeah, so what I'd like to do uh, first is just um, ask you about your career. You've had such a wonderful and impactful career and have been directly involved in the chiropractic profession from different standpoints, from the academic perspective, as well as research perspectives. Can you tell us how you got involved in the chiropractic profession and what keeps you involved these days? Uh, accidentally, I suppose, would be the correct answer. I was teaching at a university in northern Ontario in Canada, and a, a colleague at the University of Toronto in the medical school uh, wanted to uh, employ a medical sociologist to work on the first major study ever funded for chiropractic. Um, resulted in a book in Canada called Chiropractors, Do They Help? And this was a, the largest study ever done on chiropractic at that time, and it included going to the chiropractic college for a year and actually participating in the classes, including the dissection and the booze screws. And, and then we went out and studied one in five of all Canadian chiropractors. So it was a huge study uh, undertaken and the very first one ever taken on that scale to study chiropractic. And so I was invited to join it, and I actually ran the, the actual study as the researcher. And then from there, and after I'd done the study, of course, the car, I did that for four or five years, the chiropractic physician in Canada had got to know me, and then the, Dr. L. Adams, who was then the vice president of the Canadian Chiropractic College, when they were looking for a vice president, they recruited me to come and join them uh, to help restructure their, their college so it could maybe go into a university. And then within a year, uh, the president retired, and I became the president of CMCC. So much as it looks like a very well-planned planned career, it was just accidental, I suppose. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. So now you've um, not been at a chiropractic college probably for some period of time. How have you stayed involved in the chiropractic profession? Well, I have, yeah, I was, I've been out of chiropractic college for about 27 years. Now, I came to, after I'd finished being president for 10 years, I kind of had figured uh, that I had probably given everything I could give to the college. So I had a sabbatical. I became a Pew Fellow, and I came to RAND, the RAND Corporation in Santa Monica, for a one-year sabbatical, in effect, I suppose, as a Pew Fellow. And I came here to study. They were, they were at that time, had studied this whole method for looking at appropriateness of health care. And I kind of figured that that's uh, a very appropriate thing to do, but also it was a very interesting thing to do for the Company Alternative Medicine Group, so I came on a one-year fellowship, and then at the end of that year, uh, RAND, with a combination of uh, Southern California University Health Sciences and RAND, they offered me a position to stay here to continue my work. And so then I came to RAND, and over the last 27 years, I've done a lot of research that has nothing to do with chiropractic, but over the 27 years, I've always managed to have some chiropractic projects. I've done a whole range of studies here. Um, and kept alive a, a, a program of chiropractic research within within RAN. RAN has probably had the largest uh, chiropractic research program of any non-chiropractic institution and probably much larger than most chiropractic institutions as well. And then the last, the very last part of my career, as it turns out, 
I received four major awards uh, of different projects to to continue this uh, this project. So my career started with chiropractic, and it looks like it's going to end with chiropractic as well. Wow, that's that's very interesting for sure. We've we've got a lot to talk about uh, with the research that you are involved in, mostly currently. Um, you've published so many articles that I couldn't possibly mention them all, but they appear in some great journals, including JAMA, Spine, American Journal of Public Health, Medical Education, JMPT, and like I say, too many others to to get into on this podcast. So uh, what I'd like to do is get right into some of this research uh, that we can discuss today. And uh, one paper and one that's been uh, talked about tremendously over the past uh, month or so has been this paper that was accepted and, and published in JAMA, JAMA Network Open. And that is uh, the effect of usual medical care plus chiropractic care um, versus usual medical care alone on pain and disability among U.S. service members with low back pain. And so this was uh, the Department of uh, Defense trial. And um, actually, there were multiple studies to that. And I was... Uh, a um, consultant on Act 2, which was uh, one of the studies. So I have some familiarity, but um, uh, if you could tell us about this particular trial and um, give us some of the key findings as you see them. Well, it actually was a a, a project funded by the Department of Defense, um, and it actually was three trials. Uh, and in addition to being three trials, it was a, a project done by three institutions. Uh, RAN is the institution of record, which kind of means that we were given the funding is really what that means. And we oversaw the project. We were given oversight for the project. Palmer College actually did most of the work, as you probably know, ran the trials in the military institutions. And the third institution that partnered with us was what was the Samuali Institute, which no longer exists, but did exist at that point who had done a lot of military research and certainly was famous for doing uh, research in complementary alternative medicine. So it was a three-group uh, partnership that, that actually did the study. Uh, the three trials were kind of interesting. Um, they were what's called pragmatic trials or comparative effectiveness, uh, where in actual fact you, you're sort of doing a head-to-head trial against two options and you're actually comparing the outcomes. Um, and that's called comparative effectiveness as opposed to RCTs. Um, and the three were kind of interesting. One was standard, was low back pain, and that's the one that you just saw published in uh, JAMA Open. Um, the second one was kind of interesting. It was to, to look at the effectiveness of chiropractic on smoking sensation, and you might wonder why we, the DOD would do that. And I think that was just a reflection that Smoking is very high in the military, and the military certainly wants to do something about it. And they just really wanted to see that every time um, a, a, a soldier goes to a provider, there's an opportunity to intervene about smoking. And I think they wanted to see, well, how well does chiropractic perform? I mean, the actual sensation program that was used would be identical to anyone that would be used in medicine. It wasn't a specific chiropractic one, although it had been researched before in chiropractic. The third uh, trial was even more interesting because it really was about optimal performance. Was there's a there's a um, some question about if you're looking at special forces, the question is, as someone once pointed out, if you're a special force, you have to climb a mountain, and then when you get to the top, you've got to fight a battle, right? So it's unlike elite sports, 
you've not only got to perform at the level of an elite sport, but once you get to there, you've now got to do what your primary task is to do, right? So the variance in optimal performance, and this one was to look at the effect of manipulation on things like um, balance, strength, and reaction times. And so that was kind of interesting because I, I, the reason it's interesting to me is you can understand why the military would be interested in low back pain in chiropractic because I mean, that's the one chiropractic is most famous for and that's the reason that chiropractors are in the VA and, and the military is largely because of back-related pain. But here was kind of thinking outside the box, it seemed to me, uh, and uh, really looking at uh, what effect would it have on these other kind of performance outcomes. So really looking outside, not just treating symptoms, because the soldiers in that one were, were symptom-free. And there had been some previous work to suggest that there are uh, effects that can be measured uh, for subclinical conditions uh, within the back. I mean, there are, there are previous studies on that. So it's not like this was a totally crazy idea but it certainly was an exciting idea and it was a bit different. So that were the three studies. The one that you saw written up was the first one, ACT1, I think. There's ACT2 and there's ACT3. Uh, ACT3, we still haven't completed yet. We're still doing that. Okay. Yeah. If the you... ACT2 uh, smoking one didn't, didn't work too well because we, we were not able to, to do a tremendous amount of recruiting for that one. Gotcha. Um, so... Yeah, can you tell us about this um, paper that just got published in in JAMA with with all of the the uh, discussions about it? I'd I'd certainly love to get your take as an author on the paper. Well, it was a, a three site pragmatic trial, as I told you. A pragmatic trial is when you're comparing two uh, therapies head to head as opposed to a placebo, um, and so that's what it was. Um, and it was in three sites, as I said, three different military sites, which was challenging because the composition of the soldiers was slightly different than the sites. And it really was kind of, uh, in a way, in a pragmatic trial, you're trying to make sure that the therapies practice as it would be in the real world, which is not usually true for random controlled trials uh, because of all the exclusion, exclusion criteria. But in this one, it was... Uh, medical care compared to medical care plus chiropractic. And while you know, some people have criticized that um, because it doesn't allow you to totally uh, distinguish out as an efficacy trial would be the total impact or effect size of chiropractic, unfortunately in the military that's how chiropractic is practiced. You're not going to get chiropractic practice solely by itself in the military setting. It's going to be the people who are being treated are probably going to be getting medical care and medical care plus chiropractic. And that's hugely important for the profession because as integrative uh, medicine progresses where there's more and more institutions like the VA and so on where chiropractors are coming into partnership with medical doctors, that's going to be the kind of um, delivery system that's going to occur. It's going to be medicine and medicine plus chiropractic. Now, I will tell you that if you actually go to a chiropractic practice and you actually interview the patients, most of them will probably still have medical care. They may not be having it for what they bring to the chiropractor, but it's not that often that people only use chiropractic care. Uh, that's never been true in my experience. All the research I've done has never shown that. So this is, uh, this is what the trial was. And then, as you know, we, we followed them for six weeks and we measured the outcomes to look at the outcome measures. Terrific. So what were the, what were the main findings that you had? 
Well, the, 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 the scores showed that in actual fact, the, the actual and the pain scores and functional scores and so on, that the there was an effect size for having the chiropractic plus medicine care, medical care, that it quite, it's quite clear that adding chiropractic care adds to the effectiveness of the, of the treatment for this condition. So okay. they're quite positive, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. And the and other thing that was quite important about this was actually the size of the of the patient. Uh, we had seven hundred and fifty were enrolled, right? So the, there was very big sample size, which means that the stats were pretty good. Um, and then the other thing that's good about that was just that we were very successful enrolling the the soldiers to do this. So we it really worked very well. Yeah, that's true. The only challenge for us is that doing research in the military is itself pretty challenging. And then secondly, the sites this differ. Um, the way in which chiropractic is implemented in military sites varies from site to site. And even where they're located and what department they're in, things like that, they vary considerably. Gotcha. So it, 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 at six weeks, there was a statistical significant result in favor of usual care plus chiropractic care when you compare it just to medical care alone. So the the conclusion would be that adding chiropractic to medical care, it doesn't just increase. Doesn't mean, I mean it does get it does get outcomes that are that are worth uh, doing that for. Okay, yeah. Thanks for going through that. I I realize that you know with with large studies like this and important studies, there's there's always going to be people who point out limitations, and you've already gone through uh, what I perceive are the biggest limitations. Uh, the the non-randomized uh, design and lack of placebo. Uh, but, you know, you kind of have to offset some of that with uh, the fact that it was a pragmatic trial. And as you said, uh, they're not going to get rid of medical care in the DOD. So uh, adding it on seems like yeah. the best way to go. Well, I mean, it depends. I mean, you can randomize in these as well um, in the pragmatic trial. They don't always... The, the thing that people need to understand about a pragmatic trial is it's supposed to come as close as possible to the real world. And a random controlled trial, because of the way that it's set up with inclusion exclusion uh, criteria, quite often if you're a provider and you're looking at random controlled trial and you're trying to figure out the patient in front of you is a candidate for the therapy, you can't tell because they never would have been in it. So if you have a lot of comorbidities in a random controlled trial, let's say it's a trial on cancer, and I have diabetes and hypertension, a whole bunch of other things, they're probably going to exclude me from the trial. They absolutely want to make sure I've got the cancer they say I've got. They want to make sure I don't have a lot of comorbidities because it contaminates the results. So when I'm looking at my patient, and patients tend to be messy in terms of their illnesses, when they sit in front of you, they're likely to have several comorbidities. They wouldn't have got into the trial. So you're never quite sure, is your patient a candidate or not? Because... When you look at the trial, you won't find them. In a pragmatic trial, you should be able to find your patient type there because it's real-world patients that are included, right? So you're not you're not putting a lot of criteria in there to exclude people, right? And then the therapist is doing what they would normally do uh, in a in a normal uh, uh, therapeutic intervention, and so that's why the, there's a tremendous interest in pragmatic trials now, and there's a huge uh, move towards them. There are, people do randomize in pragmatic trials too, but, but uh, it, it has some advantages. And also a pragmatic trial deals with effectiveness where RCTs deal with efficacy, and the two things are not the same thing. 
efficacy at least allows you to say the outcome was due to the intervention. Uh, effectiveness probably suggests to you that it's due to the intervention, but because you didn't control all those other variables, you can't definitively say that. So it's very hard to do a causal analysis. The advantage is, though, that you're much more likely to see what would happen in the real world. So that if you look at efficacy, I mean, let me give an example. When the atrovirotoviral therapy came out for HIV, it was shown to be efficacious, but practically had no effectiveness. If you are looking at people who got HIV from sharing needles in alleys in New York or something, there's no way they were going to be able to follow antiretroviral therapy. So it might have been efficacious, but it wasn't effective. Whereas if you, uh, you'd hope that, every, that something that's efficacious could be effective, you, you can't guarantee it is. Because what you really want to know is if I give this to an average provider in, a, in an average clinic with an average patient, does it work for them? And a, a, a random controlled trial, an efficacy trial, doesn't usually tell you that. So there's a kind of logical uh, basis for going for probiotic trials, uh, but there's also weaknesses with them, as you pointed out. Great. Well, I, I really appreciate you going through that. I, I think a lot of the uh, people that are going to listen to this podcast will appreciate that as well. So thank you for that. Um, the next paper I wanted to talk about uh, also just came out, uh, and this the title of the paper is Manipulation and Mobilization for Treating Chronic Low Back Pain, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. This came out in Spine Journal, 2018 in May. Uh, could you give us just a little bit of background on this and then uh, what what you think are some of the significant findings? Yeah, well... This actually was kind of a little bit different because um, it was a systematic review that wasn't written for the sake of doing a systematic review. We had a, another a really large grant, $8.4 million, uh, funded by NCCIH. Uh, I think it was still NCCIM when we got the grant. But And this was to develop a center to study appropriateness in chiropractic, but also appropriateness of CAM generally to develop methods. And RAN had very famously developed the method, RAN and UCLA, in the 1990s on, on how to uh, measure the rate of appropriateness. And they showed in whole areas of medical care and so on, there's high rates of inappropriate care, sometimes up to 30% of inappropriate care. Um, and, and the problem is at the time that RAN did that in the 1990s, we hadn't quite, we're just beginning to enter the era of patient-centered care. And uh, this is now a, a major force within the healthcare system, and certainly researchers have taken notice of it. Um, and so when we did the appropriateness studies in the early days, we were looking at clinical appropriateness. So we'd have an expert panel made up of researchers and clinicians. They would come up with a set of indications for when something's appropriate for different patient types. We would come into your practice. We'd take a random sample of your files. We'd look at what you did with your patients. We'd look at what the experts said and we'd come up with a rate of appropriateness. But in that early days, the panel of experts were told to ignore the cost, and there was nothing given to them about patient preferences or patient uh, beliefs or values. And so now that we've moved into this new era of patient-centered care, we got a grant. It's called, we, it's called CERC, the Center for um, Evaluation of uh, Appropriateness in, in Complementary Medicine. Um, and, and we got the grant to actually look at chronic back pain, chronic neck pain, and chronic low back pain, 
which hadn't been done previously. Rand had done acute low back pain and acute neck pain before, but we hadn't done uh, chronic. So there were the two conditions we chose. We're chosen to look at manipulation and mobilization for both those. And so the systematic review was done so that we could give it to the panel. And this one, the first one was on low back pain. We've also done one on neck pain. But the low back pain, we did a systematic review and you give it to this panel of nine experts who, who then read it and then they have a set of indications that they rate from one to nine about and they're really patient scenarios. So you could say patient presents and they've got radiating pain, they've got no neurological deficit, no x-ray, no previous manipulation. Is this a candidate for mobilization or manipulation? And you rate it one to nine from a very appropriate to very inappropriate and then we, we, we bring those together and we see does the panel have agreement? And then we bring them together in a face-to-face -face meeting and they have a discussion about it. And at the end of that, we come up with agreement about a, a set of ratings for something that's appropriate, inappropriate, or indeterminate, where you, we can't tell. The, but the systematic review was done to give to the panel so that they at least knew what all the, uh, the research evidence was. And so that's the one that was published. And what we showed is what there was po uh, positive effect sizes for well, not overwhelming, but there's still positive effect sizes for manipulation for chronic but low back pain. And that's kind of interesting because in the 90s when we did acute low back pain, we couldn't say anything about chronic low back pain, not because chiropractic may not have been effective, but there just was not enough literature to do that. And uh, now there's a body of random controlled trials that you, know, you can use to do this. You know, we did a meta-analysis, and the challenge here, of course, as always is, People will disagree about what we included and what we didn't include and why we included some and why we didn't include others. The main thing about the systematic review, as it was with all of them, is to be transparent about how you did it, what were your search terms, what were the databases you turned, what were the decisions you made to include or not include them. And there's always disagreement amongst people who do systematic reviews about, well, I wouldn't have included this one and you included that one and I don't think these were homogeneous enough to do a meta-analysis, but that's so that, that study that we published was part of a much bigger study and we didn't do it just to produce a systematic review. We did it to give to a panel to make uh, decisions about appropriate and inappropriate care. And we just wanted to make sure they were conversant with all the up-to-date literature. So although the, the article actually talks about the trials that we reviewed, we also reviewed the qualitative uh, studies as well and they were given to the panel as well. The results from the panel haven't been published yet. That'll be the next thing that'll be published. Okay, terrific. The, <clears throat> now, so in that paper, you found moderate quality evidence for manipulation yes. and mobilization. It seemed right. like a little larger effect uh, for the manipulation. I know uh, some people have asked, yeah. uh, at least on social media, about the clinical significance of that. Uh, how would you how would you talk about the the clinic? clinical uh, significance or, or meaningfulness. Yeah, well, that's kind of interesting. The thing about the difference between mobilization and manipulation is, has been, people have been sort of surprised by that. We were as well. Um, as you know, the effect size was slightly better for manipulation. I'm not sure, I wouldn't put too much weight on that, to be quite honest. I think as more studies get done and uh, thing, I mean, it's, it's hard to see even see why that's the case. I will tell you that panel of experts were more likely to rate mobilization as being acceptable or appropriate than they were for manipulation. So the results in the studies are a little 
contradictory to even what the panel did. So that's an interesting twist. Hmm. The significance, I think, is like all systematic reviews, I think I always, I did publish an article years ago that, that uh, systematic reviews are, are necessary but insufficient. So what is that the, you've got to remember that earlier on, there just weren't enough studies on chronic back pain, chronic neck pain to say anything, right? They just, you couldn't have done, you couldn't have done what we just did. As I said, we've also written up uh, the one on chronic neck pain, which we're trying to publish at the moment. But there just wasn't sufficient, there was insufficient data. So in the 90s, you just had to say, we have no idea when ventilation works for chronic pain or not. This is the least suggestive that it does, right? And, and while it's not definitive, because again, you can argue endlessly about the quality of the studies, they're moderate quality, they weren't the best quality you've ever seen. But, but on the other hand, I think what uh, my metaphor for systematic reviews it's like coming to a garden that's completely overgrown and you can't really see the plant. So what you do is you pull out all the weeds, you get rid of the undergrowth and you clear the, the field so you can actually see the, the plants themselves. And the initial one that we did on low back pain in the 90s with Paul Chattel here at RAND, before that there was an argument whether manipulation had any efficacy. After the RAND study, you couldn't argue that. We had some like 34 random controlled trials. There's a fair body. That's a lot of random controlled trials. We hadn't studied many medical procedures up to then that had that many trials. So we showed there was a fair body of trials anyway. They weren't all good quality, that's for sure. But at least it showed that it looks like there was some effect uh, sizes here that you need to think about. it. And that meant that the argument could be not about whether manipulation had any efficacy, but for what patient for what condition, at what time, and by what provider does it have? You get on to what I call second-order questions, much more important questions. So you get away from the primary question about whether manipulation has any effect size, whatever, and therefore any clinical significance, and you get to the much more significant question is when and for whom does it have this effect, right? And you don't ever get to that second-order question if you don't answer the first question. So I always see systematic re uh, reviews is just a necessary step, but a totally insufficient one. Uh, and they need to be keep repeat, being repeated because the data keeps getting updated and better trials come along, and we develop new standards about systematic reviews and about random controlled trials and, and things like that, and, and we get better at it. And you would like to eventually see a systematic review where there's all outstanding, good quality studies. That would be fantastic. That takes a while, and it's not there yet. So I would say that the clinical significance is suggest to anybody, particularly if you're using opioids for treating back pain, and particularly chronic pain, which is overwhelmingly what they use for. And what do we have? 40, over 40,000 deaths this last year in America. You know, I, I think if you're thinking about this at all, you want to be looking at non-pharmacological approaches. And here's a study that suggests to you that one of them for treating uh, chronic pain uh, is the study, and as you know, one of the parts of the study, we then went out and we enrolled over 2,000 chiropractic patients and followed them, right? So we now have a huge body of data on actual patients who have got chronic back pain who are going to chiropractic for treatment. That's the biggest study of that kind ever done. And so we'll be publishing that as well. So um, I, I think it suggests to you, uh, clinic, clinically anyway, that here's a non-pharmacological uh, therapy that has some uh, adverse events. They're not unheard of, that's for sure, but the rate is pretty low, very low, in fact. Uh, so it seems to be, at least in the trials, in fact, it's, as we reported in the paper, we did get criticized for this. 
we actually reported that it's safe. Well, in the trials, that's true. There were no serious adverse events ever re reported in any of the trials. That doesn't mean it's safe because they may not be. If it's a rare event, it just wouldn't have occurred in the trials. And so, Al, we should have been a bit more cautious and said that and make clear, I thought we had made clear, that we're just basing that on the trials. But even if you collect case studies and look at the reported adverse events, it's still very low. I think we calculated for chronic for acute low back, it was one serious adverse for every 10 million adjustments. Uh, so it's, it's a very rare event, but it does occur, no question about that. So that's what I would say was the clinical significance, that all systematic reviews have this ability to sort of clear the undergrowth, if you like, identify which ones are weeds and which are flowers, identify what needs to be done, what the quality of the studies are, what the new next study should be, give some direction to the kind of research we need, um, and therefore help us get to a more important question is for what patient, for what condition, and whose hands, and at what time is manipulation the most effective. That's what you want to get to. Perfect. Well, that, that was... Uh quite a great explanation i i really like the uh, garden analogy too <laughs> with the weeds so <laughs> that's perfect um is there anything you can share about the the neck pain study i know that is in review um is there anything you can share at this point about that one uh just that and again we we found uh, modest uh, effect sizes and uh that one's a bit trickier because uh one of the things that we looked in that one, which we're trying to sort analytically, is to look at uh, multiple uh, modal approaches. It turns out a lot of the studies chiropractic is not used alone. Now, in the past, and even in the back one, you try not to include those, right? Uh, because you really want to make sure the effect sizes are due to chiropractic. But as I told, told you about the DOD study, we're sort of changing our mind about that a bit because... Um, chiropractic is not probably going to often be uh, monomodal. It's probably in the future chiropractic probably more and more. As it gets more and more accepted into, say, hospitals and so on, it's much more, much more likely to be a multimodal therapeutic intervention. You'll get chiropractic and medicine, chiropractic and mobilization, chiropractic and something. And so we're just, we're just dealing with analytically at the moment how you deal with that, right? And Typically, in, in systematic reviews, particularly doing meta-analysis, you don't want to do that, right? We think we need to rethink about that. Sounds good. So that one, we're, sure, we're hopefully, when it comes out, we'll, uh, but we're still in the process of uh, having it reviewed and submitting it, and we'll see how it turns out. Okay. And uh, I'm a bit reluctant because I want to make sure it's good enough to be published first before I find <laughs> it. Because we may, uh, if people come back and say, find faults with it, they think it shouldn't even be published yet, you know, we'd have to think seriously about that. Okay. Now, you have um, already talked a little bit about the uh, CERC project and that these two reviews were a part of that and were going to uh, the, yes. the uh, help to inform, actually, uh, yes. portions of that CERC project. Can you... Tell us what else you did in the in the CERC project, and have any of that data been published? We think this may be the biggest, largest funded project ever in chiropractic. It was even more larger than the DOD project, which I think was over $7 million. This was $8.4 million. Um, 
it was very complicated to do it. It, it had four RO1s in it. An RO1 is an independent researcher. So each one of the RO1s gets evaluated by a committee and has to pass, you know, to, to be, it's got to be a, a tub on its own bottom. But then they all have to be integrated within a center and they've got to be highly symbiotic or you don't get it funded. So the first RO1 was about looking at traditional uh, clinician-based appropriateness, which was what I told you before. That's what the systematic review was for. We had two different panels. In this case, the panels did the first ratings at home by themselves, and they followed up with two other meetings. So they got that systematic review. It's called a modified Delphine process. They At home, they rate all these. Uh, we had, uh, I think there's 145 indications they rated uh, for one, and I think 400 for the other. There's more for low back pain than there was for neck. So they rate, let's say it's 100 indications at home with all these different kind of patient scenarios and they rate them. Then we, we bring them into a face-to-face -face meeting here at RAND. Um, they've all read the systematic review and in the face-to-face -face meeting we say now and now they can draw on the literature or they can draw on their research experience or they can draw on their clinical acumen. So if I'm sitting at the table and I'm a clinician and the, the, the panel is made up of both clinicians and researchers, uh, and experts. So, so if I'm a clinician there, I can say, well, listen, I don't care what that literature tells you. Let me tell you about my 30 years experience, or let me tell you about the patient I saw last week. And if I can convince the rest of you that my clinical acumen is relevant, then you might change your rating, right? So it's a process that, that tries to use the literature, but recognizes that often the literature is lacking, but there is clinical experience, and people are doing this anyway. Patients are coming in, and they're being manipulated for chronic back pain, whether literature is there or not, and that's true for any medical procedure, right? And the num number of things that are covered in the literature is just a fraction of what is practiced in medicine. And so you have that discussion, right? So then we did that, and then we they re-rate, and so we get a new, new set of ratings where, and this is what I call, it's, the process is transparent, and it's very rational, and it's very critical because if you want to make the argument that you think this is a candidate for manipulation, you've got to convince eight or nine, depending on how many on the panel, one had nine, one had 11, you've got to convince the other 10 guys or woman on the panel that you're right. And so you've either got to put up or sh you've got to either shut up or put up in a way. <laughs> and yep. so it's a very rational, critical debate, and it's a very good process where the literature is gray. The more definitive the literature, the less doubt there is about what you should do. If you had... If you had 100 random controlled trials and they all got the same results and all said it was efficacious, there shouldn't be too much doubt about what you should be doing, right? But that's not true. That hardly ever happens, right? And as you saw, you can debate about the quality of the studies. You can actually debate about the outcomes of the studies. You can argue about whether homogeneous. And so there's always, there's always gray areas here. So at least this system, people have gone through a critical, rational process, they've read the literature, they know what it is, they, they've got clinical experience or research experience, and then you can have a debate about it. And at the end of the day, you get a set of ratings. When we've got those ratings, what we did in this panel, which is quite different, would come to the second RO1. And the second RO1 was to look at, to measure patient outcomes. And so what we, and then the third RO1 was to look at patient preferences. And the fourth RO1 was to look at costs. And each one of these did a lit review and, and developed measures and so on. But after we'd finished the panels, what we did is we went out and across the country we enrolled 180 chiropractic clinics 
and then over a four-week uh, period, every patient who came into that clinic touched an iPad. And once they touched it, uh, then they were in contact with us, and then we either enrolled them. We found out if they had uh, uh, chronic back pain or not. They enrolled. We enrolled them, and then we tracked them over uh, uh, four months. And every two weeks, they did a survey of, of their status and measure. And that's where we were measuring their outcomes, they're measuring their pain, their functionality. We also were measuring their preferences and their belief system about why they chose chiropractic and so on. So that was the second and third project. And we also collected data on their cost. And then what we did is we asked them if we could get their patient file. And so we went into the practices right across the country. This is a cluster sample six different sites across six different states, so uh, Northeast, Midwest, Florida, Texas, California, and Oregon. And so we did New York State and Minnesota, I think it was. And so this is what you call a cluster sample to make sure we've got a dispersed sample across the country. So then we asked the patient, can we scan your file? We went into practice and either we trained the clinic how to scan it or they... We scanned it ourselves, we identified it, sent it back to RAN, and so we have the file of every patient that was actually treated, and now we can use those indications from the panel to see if the treatment met the criteria for appropriateness, but we also can measure the outcome. So this is the first study probably ever to be able to uh, relate um, the appropriateness of the care to the outcomes. And But then to, with the other thing we did in the clinic is because we don't know we want to make sure that our sample of patients isn't highly biased. We went in and took a random sample of the of the files in that clinic, and again chose chronic pain patients and took a random, and we scanned those ones as well. De-identified them, and now we can compare the random ones to the ones we got, and also with the random ones, I can start calculating the percentage of chronicity that any chiropractor is treating. We don't know how much chronic pain chiropractors actually are treating. We don't have data on that. Now we'll be able to answer that. So that's what we did with the patients, and we have all these measures, and as I said, we enrolled over 2,000 of them. Um, and then we brought the panels back for a third meeting, and after we got all this data about preferences and costs and things, we also built a, an economic model where we compared the effectiveness and the cost of a therapy of chiropractic to something like 16 or 18 other therapies, and we, we built a model to do this. And you can vary the cost, and we see not only looking at its effectiveness, but given the cost, how does its effectiveness compare, uh, compare given its cost? So we actually have a, a model for economic comparability now, and that's what I meant about economic appropriateness. Then when we, we brought the panel back for the third meeting, we now presented them the data on the cost, we now present them the data on outcomes and we present the data on preferences. And I told you that in the early days before we got into patient-centered care, preferences, outcomes and costs were not presented to the panel, right? We brought the panel back in for a third thing and presented to them and we're actually experimentally trying to figure out do they, do they change their mind if they have this information? So if you're going to have patient-centered appropriateness, if you like, um, you've got to make sure that the panel either listens to the stuff and change their ratings. And we're in the middle now of calculating, does it change their rating? Does it make any difference to their uh, ratings? Or do they just continue to do clinical appropriateness and just don't take any notice of the cost, the uh, preferences of outcome? 
So it's a very, again, it's a very complicated project. It's a very large project, probably 16 or 18 researchers on this project. Uh, that's why it was so costly, I suppose. But, but again, it allowed us to do things because of the generous funding, able to do things that, that uh, you know, you wouldn't normally be able to do. This is a very sophisticated project. It's very complicated, uh, but the results, I think, will be incredible. Um, and it, it's the one of a kind. It's never been done before. And maybe, given the cost, it may not be done again. I'm not sure. But again, the end will be, as the early study was, the early study on the propane has had a huge impact for chiropractic from a policy point of view. The biggest tri uh, guidelines that came out just after the, the early study on chronic back on low back pain on propanus from RAN actually included chiro chiropractic manipulation for the first time as a, as a preferred method for uh, treating back pain. And that was an out, the, partly an outcome of that your early study done on propionus. And it's not so much the results of the study, but we did show, I think, in the early study that 27% of the patients were not appropriate for manipulation. But we also showed that it was like 40% could have been a, a manipulated and weren't manipulated. And so the early study was kind of staggering. And although most chiropractors have never understood this point, in that it showed that chiropractors weren't over-manipulating. If anything, they were under-manipulating, according to the expert panel. A lot more patients were appropriate for manipulation and didn't get manipulation. And so the fact that the, the, the profession undertook the study is the most significant point because it showed a willingness to be subjected to this critical evaluation of being shown how much of your care is inappropriate. And all therapy has inappropriate care. There's nobody on the planet that where you could argue that every single time they do something it's appropriate. Now, for medicine we know, and we've done so many of these now on hysterectomies, radical mastectomies, uh, bypass surgery, we've done a whole series of studies that ran, and in every case there's a, there's a percentage of inappropriate care, and it ranges of course, but for some it's quite high. Wow, so that's I am... Study. I'm, I'm loving this, uh, just hearing you talk about all these amazing studies and all these R01s. <laughs> I don't know how you keep it all. Uh, well, I guess you're the PI, so you, you have it all straight in your head, but well, wow. I have, that's a a, I have a co-PI. Patricia Herman is my co-PI. <laughs> well, that's not true. She is the co-PI of the center. She's the PI of the economic model. I'm the PI of the clinical appropriateness. Gary Ryan's the PI of the preference one and Ron Hayes as a psychiatrician, is the PI of the outcome measure. So there were four PIs of the RO1s, and there's two co-PIs for the whole center, and I'm the senior PI for the center and, and, and my co-PI there. Not, it's not called a co-PI, a joint PI, I think is the right expression. It's okay. Patricia Herman. Okay. And Patricia Herman is uh, not only an economist and a PhD in psychology, she's also an atropath. Wow. She works here at Rank. Wow. Amazing. I, I just love to hear all this background on how things get done too. This is really exciting. Um, now one, one, uh, another study, uh, that you have had funded through, uh, NCCIH, I guess, NCAM maybe when, right. when it was funded initially, um, this, this right. was on deconstructing the health encounter and CAM, uh, the social context. And so context obviously is a big thing that, people are talking about today and um, how the yeah. encounter uh, with a uh, physician or a chiropractor or whomever the health professional is, how much that weighs into the patient encounter and people getting better. 
Um, and this, yeah. this study is just fascinating. Uh, I read the whole thing yeah, this morning that you sent me, uh, can, can you, uh, yeah. can you, uh, describe well, okay. this for us? Yeah. Uh, uh, they did, they didn't fund it as deconstructing. Uh, they actually fund as looking at the context effect and the health encounter. The, the article I sent you, we've actually written it up as a deconstructing, but, but in a, in a general sense, that's right. There's been a tremendous amount of interest in looking at the context, context effect on, uh, the health encounter, right? I will tell you on the DOD project, one of the things we looked at there, we did visit the sites there. We are looking at the context effect on conducting trials as well, which is another interesting question. But anyway, in this one, uh, we wanted to look at um, using rapid ethnographic observation to say, let's forget about the therapy. Um, everybody says, you know, well, it's all placebo, it's all context and so on. But over the last few years, uh, we're really starting to deconstruct placebo. So if you take the work that's come out of Harvard looking at the effect of ritual, where they varied the ritual of the encounter for people who had uh, irritable bowel syndrome. And, and they showed that the, you know, and they control how much the doctor would talk and they control what he talked. And they showed it actually has an effect. Well, we all know, every single provider knows that your relationship with the patient and the way in which you interact with the patient, the encounter itself, has a huge impact on the outcome. We already know that the best predictor of a good outcome is someone who expects a good outcome. We already know that. And so over the last few years, a huge amount of work has been sort of looking at um, what is the context effect. And so a lot of it's on communication. So people have gone and they've taped the communication between the doctor and the patient. They've started to analyze the nature of the communication. They've started to look at whether the patient is patient-centered, whether care is patient-centered. And so we're more and more discovering that what used to be it lumped into placebo, uh, which means non-specific effects, right? Uh, and particularly in CAM, because those who didn't like CAM always said it's all placebo, it's just placebo, right? Well, it turns out it's not just placebo if what you mean is non-specific, because a lot of the effects in a health encounter are quite specific. A provider creates a clinic, he builds it, he, he designs it, or someone does, or she does, they, they decide on the decor, they decide on where there's going to be music, they train their front office staff, they make sure it's in a good location, and then when they get into the health encounter, they work out a health encounter that works for them. And so chiropractors get within a clinic, you get a sort of clinic health encounter. You know, you train the staff of staff how to say hello and to be polite and how they collect feet. But even the interaction between the doctor and the patient is highly structured, and it probably, and what we wanted to know is, is in fact at a, a not a non-specific effect, but a specific effect. So the first question was, can you actually measure it? Can you go into a clinic and use observation as anthropologists and sociologists would? Can you actually identify what the, what, what the, what the context is? Can you identify the elements of the context? And eventually down the road, but not in this study, can you link the context to outcome? Because if you look, all those outcomes we measure which we attribute to the therapy, even a random kind of trial, how much of it's due to the actual context of the encounter? It may be that the context, the, the way that you know you interact with a patient, has a huge, maybe 30 or 40% of the outcome, maybe due to that, not to your therapy. So we started running focus groups with both osteopathic patients and, um, and these were osteopaths who manipulate, right? So these tend to be the ones that look more like chiropractic in a way, but but again, holistic practitioners. And we also did chiropractic. And we, um, we went, first of all, we, we 
ran focus groups with their patients. And we asked them, why do you like your osteopath? Why do you like your chiropractor? And we identified elements that were said that were fantastically important to them, like listening to me, or I trust him, or the person's responsive, or, you know, uh, he treats me as any, all kinds of things that they said about their provider, right? And we identified all the, and we did a thematic analysis to identify, okay, what is it they say? They say the amount of sympathy I get, or the empathy I get, or the trust I get. And then we thought about it, okay, so we have all these characteristics now that they say is really important in the health encounter, and it turns out they all love the health encounter with the osteopath and the chiropractic. I mean, it's one of the things that the reason osteopaths and chiropractors have been highly successful, even when osteopaths weren't part of medicine, but even chiropractic in the face of opposition still managed to be successful, right? That's because they built a health encounter that's very attractive to patients, and they get very high rates of, uh, of, uh, of satisfaction. But then what we did, we took these characters and said, okay, how would we measure that in practice? If you say, okay, trust was one of the big ones. I really trust my provider. Okay, so how does trust manifest itself? If I'm in the treatment room, and I had shown previously in chiropractic care that if you're not in the treatment room watching what's happening, you don't have a clue what the context is. You can have a questionnaire and you can ask the patients when they come out from the treatment what happened and you can ask the provider what happened. But we actually did a study here at RAND where we look, we're looking at preventive health care and we had a 18 or 20 item questionnaire. And as soon as the patient came out of the room, they had to tell me if the doctor had told them this, this, this and this, right? And they ticked little boxes. And I asked the doctor to do the same thing immediately, right after the treatment. It turned out, 25% of the patients said the doctor didn't tell them to do something when the doctor told us they did. And 25% said he told them something when the doctor said he didn't. There's a 25% here. So it turns out that if you're not in the treatment room or you're not videotaping it or you're not recording it, and so if you actually go to patient files and, and do interviews with patients from health services, you think chiropractic is really treats about three major conditions, neck pain, mid-back pain, low-back pain, that's overwhelming. That's about 75% of all the things, right? They all get manipulated. You'd think that chiropractor is a subspecialty. You're in the treatment room watching what happens, and the chiropractor says, you've had a bad day today, and you say, well, how do you know that? He says, let me show you. And he does a pressure point, and all you've stored up all the tension and pressure point. He says, okay, what's going on in your life? And you start to talk to him. And he says, now, as your son's about to graduate, and he has a whole conversation with you, how do you sit at your computer? See that wallet you got in your back pocket? Don't drive your car with that thing in the back pocket. You're putting your, your spine under torque. And so if you're in the room, you'll actually realize that manipulation is given within a wellness uh, paradigm, a very uh, very broad-based wellness paradigm. It is manipulation. Everyone gets manipulated. You ask the patient what happened in that room, they're going to tell you they got manipulated. They're not going to tell you about this other stuff. But in actual fact, this other stuff constitutes the context. So if you think chiropractic is just about manipulation, You've missed the whole point of chiropractic, in my opinion. Chiropractic tends to be a, a broad-based paradigm, what I'd call um, lifestyle intervention paradigm, in which manipulation is given. <coughs> so we wanted to figure out, could you observe this and, and, and could you uh, identify what's going on? So we went into clinics. We enrolled chiropractic clinics, again, across the country. And we'd go and spend one to three days, usually about three days in a clinic, and we would follow patients. We'd interview, talk to them, of course, and we'd actually ask to see the treatment. We shadowed them. And we shadowed them from the time they stepped into the treatment room to the time they left. 
and we looked at everything except the manipulation. Everything that happened to them is part of the context, and what we're trying to identify, and we're writing this up at the moment, and as I said, it is really deconstructing placebo, because it turns out that in a given clinic, uh, the actual uh, encounters are highly specific. I mean, there's variation depending on what's wrong with the patient, that's true, but over... Over most patients, a clinic, a chiropractor, has a fairly standard way in which they interact with the patients. They've worked out a model that works for them. And that means the design of the waiting room. It means how they, you know, whether they've got nice soft music about, you know, all that kind of stuff that goes in it. That would, now, it varies considerably from clinic to clinic and from provider to provider. It doesn't vary a huge amount between patient to patient within the same provider. And osteopaths vary a tremendous amount, at least the ones we looked at. But again, within their own clinic, they've worked out a style of encounter that works for them. So to call that non-specific, because when you talk to them, they know exactly how, why it's done that way. They'll tell you why they designed it that way. They know exactly why they designed the decor that way. And so one of the results, just to give you an example of how the results get a bit strange, when you have a focus groups and you ask the osteopathic patients and the chiropractic patients, how long do you get with a the provider? They'll say 45 minutes. The first visit, they'll say an hour or something. Hour. Well, we timed them. And every clinic we went to, we timed every single encounter. And we document what's happening within two-minute periods. So every two minutes, we document what's happening, right? And we document what's been manifested. Was trust manifested? Was sympathy manifested? We code all that, right? But it turns out that when they mean 40 minutes in chiropractic, for example... They don't get 40 minutes with the provider. What they mean is they get 40 minutes in the clinic, basically. But in chiropractic, for some very weird reason, also in osteopathy, when you ask the patient how long is the encounter, they include all that in the encounter because they, they like it. They, they're positive about the front office staff. They like the waiting room. They like if they've gone on to a little vibrating machine. They might have had a heat pad. They might have even had a, a massage before. The actual time they get with the chiropractor can be five. It could be ten to you know ten minutes. But if you ask them, they'll tell you it's twenty or forty minutes. When you ask them how much time they spend with a medical doctor, when they tell you it's ten minutes, they mean the ten minutes with a medical doctor. And for some reason, they don't include all the rest when they're giving you the information about medicine. They don't include all the rest as part of the counter. They don't enjoy it, or they don't. They don't see it as part of the counter. They don't see it as positive. They, uh, the whole thing, they'll only tell you exactly, they know exactly how much time they got with the doctor. And they'll tell you, I didn't get my questions answered. He didn't listen to me. They'll make a whole, I'm, I'm being negative here, and that's not true for all medical doctors, of course. I'm exaggerating. But what I'm saying is that they tell you different things. So when they tell you, when you see in the literature that CAM gets this great uh, uh, satisfaction because they spend more time with their patients, it's true the patient does spend quite a lot of time in the clinic. It's not true that they necessarily spend it with a provider. So I'm telling you this because it, it, tell, it shows you that when you actually do these observation studies, a lot of these myths that are bandied about about CAM providers and, and things don't turn out to be true. And so, again, what we're trying to look at eventually, at the moment all we're trying to do is can you do this observation study? So it was a methodological grant. It was given for method to develop the methodology. We used rapid ethnographic observation technique, which is a well-known technique. But we spent considerable time, like it's three days in a clinic, and we observed everything for three days. And again, the clinic would let us shadow everybody. We'd have to get permission of the patient. But it's a fascinating study. I've wanted to do this study for 30 years, and this is the first time I've managed to convince anyone to fund it. 
But as we've become more interested in trying to say that what was dumped into the sort of garbage bag of placebo, we say, well, it's just all placebo. And placebo was always used against CAM providers by those who don't like them as a sort of, uh, as though chiropractors then were doing something illegitimate. As though, well, it's just all placebo. They're just conning the patient. Placebo doesn't necessarily have a negative uh, meaning. Placebo is a positive part of any therapy. It's an inherent part of every therapy. Every therapy has a placebo effect. But it, when it was applied to CAM, it was tend to be implied for negative reasons, as though somehow it was illegitimate. And what we're saying is not just from this study, but from a whole body of work now that's been done in medicine as well, people are deconstructing placebo, and we're starting to see like the, the meaning response, which is another big area that people are actually looking at. Um, there's a huge body of work now that's starting to take placebo to pieces and discovering that if you mean by placebo non-specific events, it may be that the actual non-specific part is actually quite small and the context is anything but non-specific. It's not, it's highly specific. So that's the study. Wow. Again, I'm just uh, amazed and I can tell that you really love uh, what you do and I'm... <laughs> I'm so excited that uh, I'm getting a chance to talk with you about this. And what a fascinating study. I can't wait to to read yeah. all of the results that come out. You and, you and me both, we're just analyzing now. It's quite, as you can see, it's a very complicated study to do, but the only way you can do it is through observation like that. As I said, we've already demonstrated, and I actually published a chapter in a book somewhere, comparing health services, the image of health services research about chiropractic to, to the, a lot of anthropologists and sociologists have actually done observation studies on chiropractic. It's one of the few professions that has been widely uh, been subjected to uh, and, uh, sort of ethnographic observation uh, uh, for a very interesting reason that in the early days, chiropractic was seen as a bit as sort of a weird tribe. You know, they were both professional in many ways. On the other hand, they were seen as unorthodox and outside the mainstream. So a lot of anthropologists and certainly a lot of PhD and master thesis were done in the early days to study this group because it was like having a tribe, your own tribe within America that was just down the street that you could go and study without having to go overseas or something. And so in the early days, a lot of people did these sort of studies on chiropractic. So we have the advantage in chiropractic of being able to hear what health services researchers said to what uh, uh, observation studies have these kind of observations. And if you read the two accounts, you'd think they're describing a totally different animal. It's as though they went to the zoo and saw two different animals. I mean, because you would just think, you know, what the, the ones who've done the observation tend to describe chiropractic as fairly broadly based, holistic kind of care that really does a lot of lifestyle sort of stuff, you know, very simple stuff, but, and, and so on. And then if you look at the whole services research, it looks like a subspecialty. I mean, it really looks like, uh, you know, it's uh, musculoskeletal and it's manipulation and it, it, lim it uh, treats a very limited number of conditions and it does very little with them except manipulate them. And that's, that's the view you'd get from health services research. And there's a huge body, well over 100 articles in health services research uh, on chiropractic. Again, it's been well studied. So you have this very peculiar situation where it's one of the few professions in which you can compare ethnographic observation studies with the health services kind of studies. Yeah, that's, that's really fascinating, especially those two different views, as, uh, as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, well, as I said, the staggering thing is you wouldn't think it's the same animal they're describing. I mean, you'd think it's two different kind of species, you know? Yeah, it's, it's incredible for sure. Well, 
one of the um, questions I always ask uh, my guests, and this is right at the end, is uh, in relationship to any advice uh, that you could provide either chiropractors in practice who may wish to become scientists or researchers um, or, or students who are coming up the ranks, uh, what what advice would you offer these aspiring people who who might want to become scientists? <laughs> well, maybe not. Don't become one. I don't know. Um, well, I, it, 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 there are very good models. There is a whole group of medical uh, scientists, uh, clinical scientists who are medics. You know, have done PhD and MD degrees, and they're incredible. I work with a lot of them here at Rand and. and and there used to be the Robert Wood Johnson program here that we had uh, at UCLA, the Juice Clinical Scholars. There are very formal uh, training programs to do this, but I think you're talking about a group that's a bit below that. So th there are a lot of PhD DCs around now. The tragedy for me is they tend to be all on universities and other institutions. Very few of them now are staying within chiropractic institutions because it's just not the infrastructure and they can't advance their research career. So this is not a criticism of them. It's a major fault that, that, that the profession has, and RAN has come forward with a proposal to help do something about that. We want to create a center where we would partner with people within the chiropractic institutions and osteopathic uh, and naturopathic and maybe uh, acupuncture and Ayurvedic medicine to help them develop their skills so they get grants because Outside of the, the institutions now, like universities, you can't compete for grants. And even within that, I'm a reviewer for NIH, and the, the grants coming for the proposal coming forward now are just unbelievable quality. But they're so far ahead of any chiropractic school that it's just not fair. It's not a it's not a level playing field. And you know, even top institutions like Harvard will cover the proposal, and they've got Yale, and they've got John Hopkins, and they've got who knows else. You know, three or four major universities on the proposal, and they're absolutely superb proposals. And then you've got, you know, a chiropractic school. So RAN is coming forth a proposal to create a center where we think we would like to offer both training. Uh, we would actually have training programs, summer programs, but also partnerships where we would actually help people develop proposals. We would review them, and we'd actually they could go after the proposal with us. Palmer did the one with us, for example. As I told you, that was a relationship between Palmer and Rand. But Rand did this; uh, has done this many times with others. I've done it with SCU. We've done it several times with them, and we're doing it now. Um, unless the professions uh, uh, get into some kind of partnerships like that, and some kind of institution that can help them do this and keep their their researchers, I, I fear that being a research scholar within a chiropractic college is virtually becoming a non-starter. And that's really sad because. If they don't have research and scholarship within those colleges, they just become teaching institutions. And then you have to argue, well, to what extent are you a professional if you're just a teaching institution? So this has incredible consequences. So I have to be fair and say there's lots of really good programs through NIH at the moment that will train young chiropractors to become clinical scholars. Uh, a lot of the people that work in, in, in NCCIH actually have gone through those training programs. Um, uh, many of the PhDs now in chiropractic had those support programs. So there's lots of programs out there, both through NIH and, and elsewhere, Robert Johnson and so on, uh, where a person who wants to become a, still wants to be a clinician, but wants to become a clinical researcher can actually do that, right? 
The problem is that for most of the profession now, if you do that, you're not going to end up in a chiropractor college. Uh, it's virtually going to be impossible. They won't have the infrastructure to support your clinical activity, and the chance of you getting the grants and that from there is going to be pretty difficult. So if you look around, and, and to be quite <laughs> blunt, Dr. Smith, you're a good example, right? Look at the institution you're in, right? So, right. And, and that's not a criticism. That's just reality. I'm sorry. So I, I would say, I think, to, to, to lower your step a little bit, I would say at the moment what, what a lot of the uh, profession needs to do you just become more literate about research. I mean, uh, we had wonderful people participate in this research. The front office staff, I can tell you, uh, we got 86% participation rate from the patients. That's because all patients love the doctors, right? But we went in those clinics, and if the doctor said, this is a really great clinic, and the front office study said, this is a great study, you want to be in this, we got them. I mean, it's just amazing. So I think there's a huge body of, of chiropractors out there that aren't that literate about uh, research that would like to become literate. And I think what they need to do is figure out ways where they can take some continuing education. Now, if we get this program here at RAND, we would like to put on continuing education programs so you could come in or even do it online and actually do that. But they do need to... The colleges have got to make sure the graduates coming out are more literate. I don't mean they've got to be researchers, but they've got to be able to know what a systematic review is. They should know something about... When you're reading it, what, need to, what do you need to pay attention to? How do you critique it? I mean, they don't have to be brilliant. They don't have to be outstanding. They've just got to have a, a general level of literacy. They've got to know what a pragmatic trial is. You want to, to know what an RCT is. You want to know what the difference are. So when they're reading the literature, that they, you, know, you have an ethical responsibility as a provider. You're reading literature to help your patients, but you want to make sure you're reading good literature, right? And so I, I think there is an obligation. The college is first, for sure, to producing graduates who are literate. And then I think if you're, you're, you really want to go on, I always think that the best way to start is at the, an MPH or a master's level. I think go and do a master's level degree, get a taste of a piece of research. You'll have to do it for a, a master's thesis. And then see if that's for you. I, I mean, I have to say it's a tough life being a really good clinical scholar. There's no question about that because you still got to keep up your clinical skills and you've got to be a research skills and you've got to be, you've got to make sure you don't become neither fish nor fowl. Well, you're not really good researcher, you're not really good clinician. You want to be both, right? And, and marrying the two, there are people in medicine have done it brilliantly. They do it all the time. They've done it in dentistry. In my dental school, we have a whole bunch of them. So there are, there are ways of doing that, but I, I think, to be quite honest, Dr. Wood, you need to... I think you need to take a bite of the apple first. I would con concentrate on trying to get more literate about research. But the last thing I would say is if anyone comes to you and wants you to participate in a research project like Coulter, try and say yes. As much I know it's going to disrupt your clinic, but it's only going to come once in your life. And how many doctors can't afford a bit of disruption in the clinic once in their whole career? I mean, I'm very... Un and funnily enough, I had guys that rang up and volunteered to be in this second study that were in the one in the 90s, and they volunteered to be back in this one. But, you know, we hardly ever leave a clinic where the clinic staff don't feel great. There's occasionally it doesn't work, but if that happens, we will leave. But we, we didn't have to leave any. No one threw us out, ever. And we've done these three studies. And... Uh, and I, I think mostly that they've really found it enjoyable. They found it different. They've got to know about us. So I think uh, the fashion needs to participate in a lot more research. That's for sure. 
but just do it. I, you'll enjoy it, and, and it will only happen. I mean, if I come into your clinic for three days, so I will disrupt your clinic a bit, that's true, but three days out of a lifetime? You say these are very exciting uh, uh, proposals and, and projects. Only possible because chiropractors and their patients participated in them. None of them would have happened if the chiropractors and the, and the patients and that didn't say, yeah, I want to be in, you know. So so that would be, I know that's not a very clear answer, but, but I, I think at the moment it's difficult to be a clinical scientist within chiropractic and within CAM generally. Uh, it's very difficult to do it within a chiropractic institution, increasingly difficult. I am sad to say I think the chiropractic colleges are going backwards rather than forwards when it comes to research. I think they used to be stronger. Um, and there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. But we've got to find solutions for it, unfortunately. Well, I think um, the I think the uh, advice that you gave was actually quite clear. Um, I, I really appreciate it. I, I appreciate the honest uh, review because I think that's exactly what we need. Um, we need to get more people involved. I'm glad you, you mentioned that, the practice-based kind of research. We need to get chiropractors literate in research. And so everything you said is, uh, I think, exactly where we need to go. And um, hopefully we can, uh, as a profession, get to that level because we really need to. <laughs> For sure. Well, I think you really need to because in some ways the chiropractic is an all-time high. I mean, look at this. I just had like $18 million of research grants to study chiropractic. That's, that's unbelievable. If you had asked me 30 years ago, 20 years ago, that, that just would be unimaginable. But 20 years ago, the VA wouldn't let chiropractors in the door. Now they're throughout the VA, right? So, right. And, and when you look at the research cadre, if you look at the young PhD researchers in chiropractic around who got DC, PhD, Never been stronger. There's more of them. They're doing better stuff. They're publishing. You look in Canada, look at all those 12 chairs I've gotten down. So on one level, it looks fantastic. It looks absolutely fantastic. But I have to tell you, I'm more depressed about the colleges now than I have been in 25, 30 years. And that's because I think they're in an unequal battle, and I think it's going to be a really hard battle. Uh, now that integrative medicine's come along and chiropractors getting these good results, uh, people are taking notice, they're, they're taking up the challenge, they're going to start using them more, they're going to be more integrated. But unfortunately, the colleges, are they going to participate in that or not? And I think that the colleges' research programs are weaker now than they were, I'd say, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And uh, that's sad, and that's partly because the really good researchers that are DCs now are not in those colleges. And, and the colleges can't support them. It's just there's not the infrastructure, they don't get the grants, you know. Palmer's one of the few that's getting NIH grants, but now that Dr. Goethe's move, that may not be the case. But, but she's been part of that success story for sure. And so, you know, you think about outside of that, I don't think any that don't think one of them has an NIH grant at the moment. Um, so I, 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 as I said, one part of me is incredibly impressed with what the profession's achieved and what's happened. But I think that sort of those achievements are blinding the profession to the, the real challenge that's happening, and it's happening, in the, I think, to the colleges. At the college level, not overseas. If you look in Denmark and you look in Switzerland and then Australia and so on, a lot of where their own universities now are overseas, I'd have to say overseas might have be taking the leadership here. So I'm only talking about in America, right? Uh, but I think in America, um, and even if I was the president of a college now, I would be really having a hard time to try and maintain and sustain 
a really dynamic research uh, program, and I know how to do it. And <laughs> so, so I think we've got to find a solution pretty quick. And I think the colleges have got to come together. I think there's enough talent spread throughout the colleges, but not within a single college. But if they don't come to live collectively, and if Rand can provide a form for that, I think that would be wonderful. And I think we could. But if someone doesn't do that, I I, I feel very depressed about the future. Yeah, I, I can I can definitely see that, and I see your uh, your points are well taken. Um, I feel I do feel some of that depression too. But on the other hand, I feel some optimism that uh, you know we've got some of the infrastructure in terms of at least um, DCPhDs who have gone through, and right. and I think if we can organize uh, and get the profession united. Then, then we can get something done. But you're right. Right now, it's just too fragmented. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No question about that. Uh, and they can't afford to do that. Uh, as I said, collectively, I think they can do it. They could, they could, they could compete. And particularly if they could get back these incredibly talented young PhDs that are around. And you know, there's there's a whole lot of them. We've never had more really good PhDs or DCs than now. I mean, this is this is it. Never yeah. been more of them, never been better. And they're all, many of them are in great institutions. They're getting good training, good mentoring. So the problem is, are they working for the profession? And that's the problem. You know, if you think the great strength of medicine and dentistry is those guys that are good clinical scholars, also the teachers. They're the ones who are lecturing the kids in the class. When I teach in dentistry, I've published. I'm one of the leading publishers in evidence-based dentistry, and the guy that does it with me is as well. So the dentist students get to be taught by guys that are publishing articles and books on evidence-based dentistry. And so we're scholars, you know? Yeah. You may, that makes a huge difference to the students, right? Yeah, it's enormous. Oh, yeah. Enormous. And so it's, you know, uh, and, and that's what I'm scared of in the college is that they just go back to what they were historically, which were just teaching institutions, where sometimes the person teaching had read the book the night before. And I'm not making that up. You talk to the guys that were around in the 20s and 30s, I'll tell you, that's exactly what it was like, right? The teachers didn't have advanced degrees in science. They did pretty well, but they weren't much advanced to the students, you know, if at all. Wow. We we could talk uh, all day on this stuff. This is great. <laughs> this is what I personally love. Um, I'd love to have you back on and maybe talk about some of the uh, results after you get those all published. Um, so so yeah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I know people are going to absolutely love to hear everything you've had to say here. So thank you again. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of chiropractic science, where I interviewed Dr. Ian Coulter. Dr. Coulter had some amazing information. I hope you gleaned some of that from him and from our discussion until next time. Have a terrific day.